It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Let's talk to Dr. Simon Clark. He's a virology expert and microbiologist at the University of Reading. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning, Julia. Um, lovely to speak to you. Let's let's talk about PPE first of all. I mean, again, uh, you know, personal protective equipment. We're talking about some pretty basic stuff. Some some a change in sort of guidance from the NHS uh, over the weekend to say telling people, oh well, you, you can reuse gowns that are supposed to be disposable, and you can use an apron instead of a gown if one isn't available. And understandably, I think we can safely say the NHS staff have gone. Um, no, thank you. I mean, the NHS Confederation and NHS providers are both saying they would back, you know, nurses and doctors refusing uh, to look after patients who may be at risk unless they've got the right equipment. Do you think they're right? Uh, yeah, they are. But I mean, I can, I can imagine a situation where some doctors and nurses will take that option. That is, of course, their right. But there will be a great many who feel compelled to do their duty yeah. by their patients. That's that's the trouble, isn't it? Uh, and and that's why we've seen eighty you know, NHS workers who have now died. Um, I, I'm I'm not quite sure how we deal with that, other than the fact that we do get these these uh, these gowns and gloves and things delivered. I mean, it is the case that there is a worldwide shortage, and that China is the main producer of these. So it has been um, it has been quite difficult to get this extra equipment. And when we hear about you know eighty four tons coming from Turkey, four hundred thousand gowns, you know that will be gone through in in a couple of days. Yeah, they will burn through that very quickly. Um, my understanding is that some hospitals are okay for PPE. Some are really in a very bad situation, and you have quite a few sort of middling who are who are perhaps just days away from running out of things, and they need they need to be able to uh, acquire extra supplies from places like Turkey. But this is what happens when you sort of outcountry all production of everything that's that's sort of high value, low low margin stuff like PPE. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the big worry. Let's talk about the figures we got yesterday. 596 new deaths, every single one a tragedy for them and their families and loved ones. Uh, but those are the figures on Sunday. That's the lowest death toll in two weeks, lower than the last two weekends, because we know we tend to see lower figures from Saturday and Sunday. So Sunday and Monday's figures are usually lower. But um, that, that, that gives us some encouragement, does it not? We're now looking at the figures doubling every 12 days. Um, are you hopeful that we are now past the peak or at the very least heading towards the the plateau? I think we're in the plateau. Um, I'm not quite sure how long the plateau will last. Uh, I think at least another week and then things will start to improve. We will start to see a decrease in numbers. But I am slightly concerned by Italy, which has... Uh, a similar shape and size curve to us. 
they're, they're, they're sort of decline. They're on the decline, but only very slowly. And I don't really know why. The modelers are probably looking at that. And it'd be interesting to know what they think of it. That's the interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, that uh, this, this virus is playing out as this virus is choosing rather than as the mathematicians and the epidemiologists are, are, are telling it to play out. I mean, that's, that's the trouble, isn't it? Um, and uh, and in, in terms of um, uh, deaths in care homes, one of the headlines today is that in the week of the 7th of April, so a couple of weeks ago, the that 2,500 people died in care homes al- alone in that week. Um, we are looking at a, a, a much higher death toll than the official hospital figures give us still, aren't we? Yeah, we are. It's looking roughly as though you can put a 50% premium on on the, the hospital death toll as to what we're getting in, in care homes and in the community. So really, those, those figures that we get from the Department of Health, which we know are only um, deaths in hospitals, are only really reporting two-thirds, roughly, of the total national picture. Yes, and that that is certainly a big concern. And in terms of the the people making comparisons between countries, now we know that all the top experts are saying very difficult to compare different countries in terms of how they collate their figures. Or, you know whether the deaths relate to a particular day or something that might have happened eleven days earlier. Um, uh, whether you die with coronavirus, whether you die of coronavirus, lots and lots mm-hmm. of different difficult ways of comparing. But um, how do you think we are doing? Lots of people saying that we are following a, a bad curve. We, we, we're doing less testing. We've got less PPE. We've got higher deaths, blah, 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 blah. Are we doing a lot worse than other countries? Well, I think, I think it's arguable in terms of numbers, we're doing pretty much as was expected. Um, that The PPE argument is one that I think um, uh, we've not done so well on. Um, where we have done well is ramping up, as a country, is ramping up capacity uh, in hospitals of critical care beds. We haven't seen that break. We haven't seen that buckle, and uh, that's a good thing. That's an achievement. Yes, I mean, yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, that, that was one of the main issues, wasn't it, to make sure we had enough beds, enough ventilators. We did see in some, certainly in some hospitals in North Italy, Lombardy, that uh, that they were just having to pick and choose which patients did get treatment and which didn't. Can I also ask you about, I mean, there's some some hopeful reports at the weekend about possibility of vaccine, uh, particularly with um, Professor Sarah Gilbert uh, at Oxford University, although um, uh, Sir Patrick Valance has said, look, you know, it's going to be very hit and miss. But a report today from um, NHS Blood and Transplant asking people who've recovered from COVID-19 to donate their blood so they can assess the possibility of a blood therapy in trials. So treating hospital patients who are ill with the disease right now with the blood of people who've recovered, who have antibodies uh, to, uh, to COVID-19. What do you make of that? Well, this is something called passive immunotherapy and, and people have been doing it for well, about 100 years ago, 100 years now. I mean, it was done during the Spanish flu. You take the blood from people who've had the infection and get their antibodies out of it, basically just by spinning the cells out of it in a centrifuge, and then giving that, transfusing that uh, plasma, that antibody, into people who've got the disease, people who are really ill. And there have been some encouraging signs that, at least in some people, this improves their condition. But um, again, it's still a very sort of in-trial thing. It's, it's not a, a known-known, if you, if you know what I mean. It's not something for us necessarily to pin our hopes on. Uh, not too much, no, and it does appear to be working only in some people. But, of course, anything is useful at this time. We, we don't have any therapies or any vaccines for this disease. All we have is time and oxygen therapy, uh, supplemental oxygen. That's all there really is. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Dr. Simon Clark, virology expert and bi- microbiologist at the University of Reading. 
Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Be well informed. Right now, let's talk to our first guest of this hour. We'll talk to him about that and the education issues. Robert Halfen is Tory MP for Harlow. He's also chair of the Education Select Committee and a former government minister as well. Good morning to you, Robert. Uh, good morning. Hello there. Uh, hello. Um, let's speak first, if we can, about these specific a- accusations in the Sunday Times. Michael Gove called the claims grotesque. Um, there are lots of specific allegations, like that the Boris Johnson didn't chair COBRA meetings. Instead, it was Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and Boris took a back seat. Uh, the, the, there was a failure to prepare that he was too nonchalant. Early warning signs were missed. Um, uh, and that we, you know, we sent uh, PPE equipment to China, to, to China, which we could have needed ourselves. This whole array of allegations. Michael Gove hit back yesterday and called those claims grotesque. A, a, a very detailed document was released last night, um, you know, itemising those claims and hitting back at them. Was the government guilty of, of missing the early warning signs and failing to prepare? Well, I think the rebuttal on the government website sets out clearly that uh, this wasn't the case. But however, it's very easy for people to um, look with hindsight. And uh, there are a lot of what I call ACDCs, armchair commentators discussing the coronavirus, thinking that they, they would have done this or that better. I think that the only thing we can do at the moment is follow the advice. There will be a national inquiry, I'm sure, I expect, afterwards when all these questions will be asked but to go into a post-mortem now before we've even got over this uh, awful disease I think is entirely the wrong thing to do. You feel it's just too soon but I mean there is this big concern ongoing concern about uh, the failure to ramp up testing uh, and and this inadequate PPE. Now we know there are a lot of other countries where there's also a lot of criticisms not just America we saw Emmanuel Macron the French president had to basically say sorry for failures that his government uh, uh, had made uh, during this uh, pandemic certainly Italians and Spanish aren't coming out of this with any glory. Um, There are a lot of governments that are are making mistakes. It is important when there is a mistake or when there is a failure for politicians to be honest and open with the people, isn't it? Well, I think, of course, there is. But uh, if you look, the government's responded to, uh, uh, for example, with the testing of care homes. I think 30,000 care homes were contacted by uh, the end of this weekend we've just had um, in order to ensure that there are there is proper testing. No doubt there will be things that have gone wrong and things that have gone right. But I, I do think that uh, for the most part, we just need to get on and solve this, get rid of this awful disease. Uh, doing it, do everything we can, and then have the uh, post-mortem and the inquiry afterwards where we can learn the lessons and make sure that uh, this sort of thing never happens again and that we are prepared in every possible way. And we do know a number of the countries that have prepared well in Asia uh, is partly actually because they did have the SARS pandemic uh, some years back and so they did they'd have got that preparation as we know uh, we're usually much better preparing for things we've already experienced. Let's talk about what's going on with the schools though. Today is the first day back after the Easter holidays for most schools. Very very worrying headline in the Daily Telegraph today. You and I have discussed this repeatedly uh, throughout this about the schools being closed that it is actually the disadvantaged poorest pupils at the perhaps uh, lesser successful schools who are going to lose out the most Uh, while um, um, lots of schools are providing uh, online lessons two 
thirds of children are failing to log on for uh, online lessons. Some schools simply aren't providing them. And what a surprise. The richer the school, the uh, the better results, the, the better off the pupils, the more likely it is they're getting on with those lessons. This is going to be a disaster, isn't it? If we see um, hundreds of thousands of pupils from the most disadvantaged backgrounds failing to get an education for an entire term. Um, well, I agree in many ways. I mean, the online learning is really worrying. Two percent of teachers in a teacher tap survey uh, uh, said that um, the most disadvantaged schools in the most disadvantaged schools believe that uh, pupils have access have don't have access to adequate adequate devices for online learning. I welcome the government's announcement yesterday of laptops. I think we need a nationwide scheme of laptops for learners and laptops donated by business people. I think we need a mentoring scheme uh, by charities, by retired teachers. And also, I think the private schools need to step up. I'm very supportive of private schools, just to be clear, but they do have uh, charitable uh, status. They do get a, a significant tax advantages. And I think they should step up and help uh, mentor and teach and look at support some of these uh, schools where there are vulnerable uh, pupils. But uh, we know already that pupils are left behind. They're way below the uh, attainment score. And uh, what uh, we need to do now is to make sure that these people are looked after once the crisis is over. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, there is some talk that perhaps some of these people could perhaps be working over the summer. I mean, again, it looks like we're not going to be able to be going away on holiday over the summer. That's certainly the issue. But again, we know, as you mentioned, the government uh, you know, sending out 300,000 laptops and iPads. We're probably going to need a lot more than that. And then obviously... Um, uh, the the Wi-Fi companies the uh, you know, are, are making sure that they're not going to be charging uh, for access to these particular um, uh, um, uh, you know educational apps so that the you know parents who can't afford to have uh, that sort of uh, use of their uh, of their you know their, their their utilities aren't going to be hit with big bills. This is going to involve a huge 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 program of help, but also identifying the people who most need the help and then making sure they get it. Teacher uh, relatives of mine have said you know they're having to check up on the their at-risk children uh, to make sure that they're okay that they're being fed properly that they're that they're safe and that's their first concern even before they worry about them getting lessons but we know that it's going to be much easier to sit and learn at my daughter's uh, you know first classes start at 8 30 this morning they're being very closely monitored she's got a nice quiet bedroom with a desk and she's got wi-fi and that she can sit and work uh, when the lessons i have to say have been superb from her school if you're in a very clouded flat and you're sharing a room with two other kids and of different ages and, and you haven't got wi-fi and you, you you're sharing one tablet between you that's going to be virtually impossible to do. Um, it is. And, uh, a head teacher contacted me last night saying 200 of his pupils don't have access to online learning and they've now switched just to paper to send the homework and the extra online uh, learning uh, home to, to them. But I also think that the government need to introduce, once all this is over, a catch-up premium, which would help fund the mentoring and extra support for these uh, pupils who've been left behind. Because part of the problem, if we can donate laptops and 4G modems, the issue is getting those into people's homes and ensuring that uh, uh, the kids are learning from them as well. Yeah. I mean, that's the key thing, actually having parents in the home who understand the importance of doing this and, and, and willing to stand over them and say, no, you need to do this work. I mean, this is we know that the biggest single indicator of a child doing well in school is parents believing that education matters. 
Well, that's going, that is the much harder thing, and that is why um, there is not a huge amount that can be done during the crisis, apart from the support from the teachers and the schools who may be able to identify uh, the vulnerable pupils, but a lot of it will have to be done afterwards. That's why this catch-up premium will be incredibly important. Yeah, And you catch-up premium, you mean the government giving some of the schools with the most disadvantaged pupils extra money so they can pay for all this extra tuition? What? A special fund, yeah. It would be about, so for example, if you taught uh, pupils three times a week for about half an hour, uh, what uh, that shows is the um, it would increase a pupil's learning by about five months' progress. And that would cost around £700 per pupil. It is a lot of money, but we are going to need to fund these things in order to ensure, don't forget, these students already left behind, already underperforming, and it will be even worse um, once the, uh, in the aftermath of the coronavirus. Absolutely. Robert Halfen, thank you very much for joining us. Chair of the Education Select Committee, Tory MP for for Halfen for Harley. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer and The Times. Know your times. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Right now, though, let's talk about what's happening with our schools. A number of different stories about schools today involving whether or not schools are going to come back. We're told definitely not coming back in May. That was one of the possibilities listed in the Sunday papers yesterday. But also, as Daily Telegraph reports today, two-thirds of children failing to log on for lessons. And, of course, they largely are the kids who are most disadvantaged at some of the least uh, lowest-achieving schools. Well, let's talk about all of this with the former Education Secretary, still the Tory MP, Damien Hines, who joins us now. Good morning to you, Damien. Hi, Julia. Lovely to speak to you. Actually, before we move on to the schools issue, can we uh, can we talk about uh, the the issues of of PPE and the accusations in the Sunday Times? Uh, Michael Gove called those claims grotesque. If people haven't seen that story, basically the accusations are along the lines of the government dragged its feet for five weeks. There were five Cobra meetings chaired by Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, not the Prime Minister. Uh, that Boris Johnson was nonchalant. Early warning signs were missed, um, uh, and that basically the government didn't really get on top of issues like PPE didn't get on on top of things like testing uh, because they basically didn't take the pandemic warning seriously enough. Now, I say the the accusations have been hit back at very detailed response. What do you make of those accusations and the government response? 
Well, look, it's very clear to, I think, all of us in Parliament uh, that the government has been taking this extremely seriously right from the start, as indeed it should and it must. And on, the, on those uh, suggestions, those reports from yesterday, there, as you say, there was a very detailed um, rebuttal of them, and I encourage people to look at it on the Department of Health and Social Care website, which goes through kind of point by point uh, and explains why some of those things are misleading. So, yeah, this is a, it's a huge challenge. Of course it is. And there are, there, I'm not saying that everything's gone right, but it has been taken extremely seriously right from the very top in government and getting everybody to try and work together to, to try and defeat this, this awful virus. I mean, that's it. I mean, there are certainly key things like uh, the idea that Boris Johnson wasn't taking it seriously because he was not chairing COBRA meetings. Even, you know, Sajid Javid, effectively sacked by the Prime Minister, has come out as former Chancellor saying, well, no, that's that's not what happens. You know, the the, the relevant minister in each case normally yeah. chairs these committees rather than uh, these meetings, yeah, rather absolutely. than the Prime Minister. And, and, and a lot of these specific allegations have been hit back at. Um, and of course, there is a lot of competing scientific and medical advice. And also, as we know, a lot of competing uh, advice on when schools can come back now. Now, we have seen, have we not, that um, some reports that we're looking at a traffic light system for bringing back the economy after lockdown. And, and that would be, you know, the sort of you know, the businesses that stay closed, the businesses that are half open. And, uh, and among those on the green light would be schools. Trying to get schools back seems to be one of the top priorities. And certainly that well, they were uh, one of the last um, made, you know, major uh, places of, of people gathering to be closed. And probably, let's face it, closed a little bit earlier than uh, uh, the government had wanted. Um, but how soon do you expect schools? to come back well i mean let's be clear we all want schools to be able to go back because every week of schooling lost even if you know you're learning at home and mums and dads and carers are doing a brilliant job but every week you're not at school that's a real disadvantage for those kids and also yeah, they're missing their friends all that social interaction but most importantly the magic of the teacher at the front of the room so there is a real benefit to being able to get back to school but it can only be done at the right time. And uh, the Education Secretary was very clear yesterday. There isn't a date yet. There can't be a date because the modelling is constantly being updated. The government has set out tests for, uh, you know, for getting on top of this uh, virus. And, and only when those tests are met can we, uh, you know, can, can we change the lockdown arrangement. So I think you know, it is frustrating for people. It's very difficult. I know people are going, yeah, people are going a bit stir-crazy at home. It's very difficult for parents really taking on their role especially a lot of them are working from home as well but we do have to we do have to stick with this until it is possible to say that yes we can now uh, we, we can now ease that lockdown OK, well, I mean, you know, we know other countries around Europe are bringing schools back, I mean, Germany uh, and the like, uh, and they're, 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 you know, and France as well, because they are a bit ahead of us on the curve. Of course, we know countries like Sweden, uh, they've never even closed their schools. Well, Sweden um, they're, had they're, a different they're... approach. I mean, if you yeah. look across the world, actually, just every country has had a slightly different approach in, in, in different respects. Uh, and, you know, nobody can say 100% that any of those approaches has been right or wrong because everybody's been having to move forward gradually based on their own scientific advice, based on the expertise in their countries. I, I trust the scientific expertise and the advice in our country. I think we've got some of the finest scientists and one of the finest public health care systems in the world. But you can only ever keep making judgments, and it's the judgment of how the... You know, how that spread of the virus is going, how this lockdown is uh, working, and, of course, weighing up all the different factors that, that, that play into that. 
Yes, I mean, this is the crucial point, isn't it? The decision about when to go into lockdown, what to lock down and when to come out and, and in what order. Those are fundamentally, although based on medical and scientific advice, those are political decisions because they are about weighing risk. And a scientific or a medical advice could always say there is a risk to doing X or Y, um, but there is a risk to not doing X or Y, and it's weighing up those risks. So fundamentally, this will be a political decision. Now, so far, the government has had a very widespread support, well over 50% support in the nation. Um, uh, we are seeing that support beginning to drift downwards. But again, I can't imagine any government doing anything at all, not seeing their support drift downwards um, when people are locked down, losing their jobs and the like, because people are anxious and worried. And we're constantly told all the other things that we should be doing that we're not doing and why we're wrong. But of course, that's what's happening in every country, isn't it? There's no country where yeah. everyone is clapping everyone on the back and saying, well, aren't, aren't, we, aren't we all just doing perfectly and everyone else has got it wrong? No, you're right. They are judgments. And that's why we have democratically elected people ultimately to make those judgments who can be who can be held to account. Obviously, the key, key thing here is the is the health effects of keeping people protected and keeping our NHS uh, protected in terms of the lockdown. But there are also health problems that come with a lockdown, you know, from less uh, exercises, other social problems that come, mental health problems that come so inevitably you do need to make you do need to make some of these trade-offs it is as you rightly say it's informed by the scientific uh, advice but ultimately you know people have do have to make those uh, those balanced uh, considerations and it and clearly is not easy as you say rightly governments around the world uh, are having to having to take that on and everybody inevitably faces criticism but that's part of our job as politicians we are there to, to be held to account, to be argued with, uh, you know, and, and to have to justify uh, what is being done in what is clearly, clearly a very, very difficult situation for everyone. Yeah. I mean, just finally, let's talk about this this front page in the Telegraph that two-thirds of, uh, of pupils haven't taken part in online lessons since mm. the lockdown began. Now, there will be lots of schools that just didn't have anything up and running ahead of the Easter holidays. They've mm. had, you know, a couple of weeks to get that sorted. They're back at school today, a lot of those schools. What a surprise. Private school pupils twice as likely to get online tuition. Basically, the better your school, the more high-achieving the school, uh, the more likely you are uh, to be able to do that online tuition. But, of course, the more likely you are to have middle-class parents and everyone's yeah. got an iPad and everyone's got broadband and Wi-Fi at home. We are... We know there are going to be hundreds of thousands of children already uh, living in homes where they're disadvantaged, already perhaps living with parents who don't value schoolwork in, in circumstances they can't get work done. They are basically not going to have lessons this term at this rate. What are we going to do about that? Yeah, you're, you're right, of course, that the, the effect of the lockdown is, is very different in, different in different families. One of the one of the considerations is the availability of IT equipment and an internet connection. Actually, I mean, great majority of households do have the internet in some cases it might only be on mum's phone which isn't much use for you know doing school lessons uh government as you know has announced in the last couple of days um this program to get more laptops and internet connections to the most disadvantaged families also two other really important developments this morning uh the new bbc bite-sized learning program is out and there's also this new national academy um which is a service set up to help support teachers, because teachers can't be expected to suddenly, you know, know how to put together an online uh, programme of learning. But there's this National Academy, the Oak National Academy, which is there to help uh, to provide them with materials for that. So there is a lot of work going into this, but, but ultimately it is difficult. You know, for kids, it's difficult to maintain the same level of concentration uh, when you're at home, when you're not changing between lessons, you haven't got your 
friends there, of course, the teacher at the front of the class. But we do have to we do have to try and stick with it because for so many children, this is such a vital, pivotal part of their young lives on which so much in their future will be will depend. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Damien Hines, former Education Secretary. Talk Radio Breakfast with Julia Hartley Brewer. Weekday mornings from 6.30 on Talk Radio. Right now, delighted to welcome the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, to the show. Good morning to you, Minister. Good morning. Good morning. We have to go straight in, I think, on PPE, the personal protective equipment, something we didn't, hadn't really heard about two months ago. Now seems to be on our lips every single day. Um, do you accept that the government didn't get enough PPE equipment, didn't order enough, didn't buy enough and hasn't distributed it enough and that this has been one of the failings, that it is a legitimate point to criticise the government for? Well, actually, we have ramped up enormously the amount of personal protective equipment. So over a billion pieces of personal protective equipment have been delivered. And if you look at the scale of the challenge, it's taken us from the beginning of the crisis. uh, 233 hospitals had protective equipment. We've now got to 58,000 different institutions. Now, of course, that, that is a challenge to get that much equipment out. And we've been working hard both uh, in the UK and internationally to get as much equipment to the front line as quickly as possible. But we're not alone in this. And countries around the world are struggling to get equipment given the scale of how much is needed by our hospitals and, and other institutions. So you're, you're saying, look, this is, this is an unprecedented demand on a wider scale than perhaps even the, the preparation for a pandemic flu uh, outbreak. And, and therefore, the, the, the problems have been understandable? Well, the, there's been unprecedented demand. We've worked hard to meet that demand. As I said, over a billion uh, pieces have been uh, secured. But what I'm saying is that uh, against that, that has to be set against the backdrop of, of how much demand there is um, and all countries are struggling to get that to the, the front line as, as quickly as possible. But we have we've got a huge amount to the front line. But of course, I appreciate that there remain concerns and we're working hard to get equipment as quickly as possible to, to those who need it. Now, obviously, you're not the health secretary or the cultural secretary. It doesn't come within your remit. But would you, as you know, as a fellow human being in this country, would you support those doctors and nurses and other frontline workers who say, look, we're not willing to treat patients who will be a risk to us and therefore a risk to our families as well if we don't have the right protective equipment? Would you endorse that? Of course, I understand completely and sympathise hugely with doctors' uh, concerns and and other frontline uh, NHS staff. That's why we're working so hard to get the equipment to the the frontline. We have issued uh, clinical uh, guidance. We issued that on Friday about uh, what doctors should do in the situation where um, where equipment may be running short. And that's I would advise them to to follow that, exactly that advice. Okay, well, then we know that some of that's been downgraded and that's been a concern as well. But let's move on to other issues. Obviously, time will be against us otherwise. Um, Big article in the Sunday Times yesterday by their Insight team, which Michael Gove, your colleague in the cabinet, called grotesque in terms of some of the claims. The the summary is that basically the government dragged its feet for five weeks. Uh, The prime minister didn't chair COBRA meetings. Um, The the government was nonchalant. It missed early warning signs uh, and it didn't act soon enough to order PPE, didn't act soon enough to prepare the country uh, and to lock down as well. What do you make of those allegations? Um, I don't really think it's a fair characterisation. First of all, in terms of chairing uh, what's called COBRA, which is the Cross-Government Emergency Coordination Committee, 
That was initially chaired by the health secretary. He's the responsible minister. It's normal for the prime minister to delegate something like that to a responsible minister. Previous governments have done exactly the same thing. That doesn't mean the prime minister wasn't involved. He was personally engaged from the very beginning of January. And we took um, appropriate steps. So, for example, we started procuring additional PPE, the, the personal protective equipment, uh, towards the end of January. So the system was was up and running. So I don't think it was fair to, to characterise the PM as being asleep at the wheel. OK. You, are, you, are you confident that when, and there will be inquiries, there will be a, a lot of talked about this in the future and investigations, are you confident that, yes, there will have been mistakes made because every government does make mistakes, even with the best will in the world, that the government will be judged to have done its best at a difficult time? Or do you think there will be some questions to answer over some mistakes? Well, of course, there'll always be lessons to learn. As you say, we can't get every single call uh, right. I don't think now is the time to be uh, sort of navel-gazing at, at what what went uh, wrong or what went right. There'll be a time for that. Our focus is 100% on dealing with the challenges that we face. And, of course, uh, all governments around the world have been uh, tackling this um, unprecedented crisis and dealing with the, the challenges uh, facing it. But if you take some of the key measures of what we needed to get right, the first okay, thing we said I- was... Uh, sorry, do, do, no, no, do uh, carry on, sir. sir. No, I, mean, I, was just, I was just going to say, if you take the key thing we said about um, ensuring that we uh, we got the equipment, the um, the ventilation equipment in place. So the, remember the, that real concern about would it be overwhelmed? Would, would we not have enough ventilation equipment? We ensured that throughout this entire crisis, we've made sure that there's more ventilation equipment than, uh, than there was demand for. So we, we have worked through many of the challenges. Okay, let me ask about a challenge which a lot of people are feeling today. Front page of the Sun uh, saying that uh, pubs could stay closed until Christmas. Of course, not definite. No one knows when the lockdown will end or in what what order. But it does appear that uh, uh, hospitality will be among the last uh, uh, businesses to be open. Um, We just uh, earlier on had Fiona Stapley, uh, the editor of the Good Pubs Guide, on. She said, look, if pubs don't open until Christmas, it's going to be an absolute disaster. And frankly, there won't be any pubs left. Uh, What do you say to that? Well, first of all, I, I love the, the local boozer myself. And uh, I'm one of, when I get any free time, I love going to my local pubs in uh, Hertfordshire. And I'm uh, as desperate as anyone else for them to open as, as quickly as possible. And we all want to get back to normal life. But we have to do it in a way that it's safe to do so. That's why we set these five tests as to when we can start to ease the lockdown restrictions. And then the order in which we ease those lockdown restrictions will be based on the, the scientific evidence. So we, I want, I want them open as quickly as possible. I know what an important economic contribution they make, let alone the huge social value. But we can only do that when it's safe to do so, because otherwise the risk is if we go too quickly, we're going to have a second peak, and then we'll have to have even more uh, draconian restrictions that none of us want. Okay, just finally, Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, have issued a statement saying they'll no longer have any dealings with any of the British tabloid newspapers. And of course, you know, that's the, the Sun, the, the Mail, the Express, and the Mirror, and their Sunday equivalents as well. Um, of course, they're no longer part of the uh, formal working royal family. Uh, they are now effectively celebrities themselves. But um, what do you make of their decision not to work with the British media? Well, as as you say, uh, they regretfully took the decision um, not to be uh, working members of the royal family anymore. So it's really um, up to them in terms of the the value that the newspaper industry provides to the UK. I think it's hugely important. That's why over the weekend I announced some further measures to try and 
support the industry through this very difficult time because at a time when there's you know false narratives uh disinformation reliable news information it's so important and i think that our vibrant press is part of what makes us a a, a free country okay well thank you very much indeed for joining us cultural secretary oliver dowden thanks for listening to the julia hartley brewer daily if you liked what you heard please subscribe and give me a good review and don't forget to catch me on the talk radio breakfast show every weekday from 6 30 until 10. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.